I believe that each person walks between the line of privilege and victimization at all times. And this happens because we're intersectional. We live in a myriad of realities in parallel. Hello, I am DMR. Um, I will explain later why I go by that as an artistic name. This is my fifth year at Columbia. I'm doing my dissertation. Uh, and I basically been in the academic route since I started writing music because I thought that was the only way to do things. So your teacher tell you, you have to do a, well, my theory teacher is like, you have to do a theory PhD because I was really good at theory back in my second, like theory three, when you're doing like Neapolitan courts and I was in a role, like I love, love theory. And I was starting to write back then. This is around 2008 and what is interesting is that I move from Colombia, the actual country. <laughs> yeah, because you, you are from Colombia, yeah. and now you go to Columbia University. <laughs> and everyone is like, oh, that's so funny, Colombia, going to Colombia. I'm like, yeah, ha, ha. you're so original. Yeah, <laughs> first time you ever heard it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I wasn't like trained when I was little. I like I always was inclined to do artistic things like I did a lot of um, like drawing and like I would play things on there briefly I was in musical theater like there was this thing called Missy in in Bogota which is like a musical theater production for kids training kind of thing and I was there for two years years and a half and it's because it got expensive and it tends to be for more bougie people. And we were like just middle class and I kind of fell in love with marching band. So mm. marching band became my life and I started playing cymbals. Oh, you were playing, oh, you, were, you, were you marching with the cymbals <laughs> yes, too? Yes, like in okay. sixth grade. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was in marching band too. I don't know if you what know do that. you yeah. play? I, I played, I played like the quietest <laughs> instrument. I played the clarinet. clarinet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Like at twelve, I was like discovering a lot of things, and I was like getting into anything I could. I was doing the. Yes, that was my last year doing the musical theater thing. Then there is this Spanish kind of ensemble called Tuna. I don't know how to explain it, but they have like big capes and they have like tambourines and you sing and it's like, vamos, tuna, and you like dance with the tambourine. So I did that like for two months and I did marching band. So I ended up falling in love with marching band because my cousin had graduated and did marching band in the same school and she sometimes would pop in and teach how to do a snare. So I wanted to really, really go the snare route and do a snare, snare. But it never panned out because I started with cymbals. And then one day my friend tricked me, called me. Yeah, by the way, tomorrow we have marching band rehearsal and it was Saturday. Hold and behold, I got there and it was just winds. And I'm like, I'm not a wind player. What am I doing here? Like, oh, we just need more winds. And I thought you could just try it. <laughs> show up and just pick up a pick up an instrument and start playing. Yes, and basically, okay. and it's the like. I mean, it, it, it's a very strange way to learn music because at the time in sixth grade we didn't have many options. It was just pocket trumpet, 
which is again weird for marching band. Yeah. I think we were the only ones, like all girls school playing pocket trumpet, trumpet or bugle horn. Okay. And the way that you start playing trumpet was no the bugle horn. Or, no or mellophone or no. No t uh, tuba or uh, sousaphone or nothing else. So what was doing the low stuff then? There was nobody. Oh, there's doing no low. <laughs> no low. We, we don't are... need that. We don't need the bass. <laughs> no bass at all. The only bass okay. was the bass drum. I don't know. It was really cool because the main like we have like the section leaders and we have the drum major, and the drum major would do the her thing with pocket trumpet and just cue with the pocket trumpet, and they were really into Latin ska and the section leader was really tight with the drum major and they were like really into Latin sky and it was a huge influence in me and be like oh I want to be cool like them like <laughs> I want to be like Olguita and Carolina and they're listening to ska so I'm gonna listen to ska so it started like that it's like exploration of ska and I was very talented because I was doing just like G5 the first day I'll pick up the, the, the bugle horn. Just playing that one note? Like that note, then the C, I mean, but this is F actually, because I'm, I'm, I'm talking trumpet. And um, B flat. And B flat. Yeah, so transposing it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I played G5 or F5, B flat five, and like I could up do- Up the series. Up the series yeah. in the first day. Wow, okay, well, it was just without anybody telling you how to do it. Just, yeah, yeah. Oh. And it's, all of these marches that I learned were like actual like martial things that you would learn by ear. And everyone, like if you are in eighth grade, you are teaching the girl from sixth grade. If you're in 10th grade, you teach the eighth grade. Um, and it's just that type of uh, army culture. Yeah. Which again is very strange for an old girl Catholic school kind of thing to do. And the uniforms were like really short skirts, high boots. Uh, but it was a huge uh, influence because in eighth grade we had for the first time the introduction of trombones and the introduction of saxophones and clarinets. So we got two clarinets, two trombones and two saxophones. And how big was the band? I would say the biggest it ever got, it was around ninth, when I was ninth or eighth, it was like 60 kids. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's a big size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it, it fluctuated yeah. between 40 to 60. And, but with the introduction of those instruments, slowly you just start to see, because everything before then it was oral tradition. Like, sounds like this, look what I'm doing. And now it's like, hey, by the way, sheet music exists. And so you guys weren't using any sheet music? Or no. doing all about, what about the drill? How are you doing the actual marching? We just practiced. I mean, we had a teacher. And that's the other yeah. thing that it was like kind of strange. They didn't have a teacher for a couple of years, and then they had a new teacher. Yeah. So the drum major was bumpy heads with the, with the teacher. Yeah. Because for two years, they were like training and doing things on their own. And then there's like this guy. And he was actually also training for uh, La Escuela Militar and other stuff. Her name, his name is Ferney. And you can see the tension, but you were kind of little because you don't understand what's going on too, like if you're new to the marching band. But then looking back, uh, you kind of... 
But people in marching band are like so passionate, you know, yes. about <laughs> marching band. <laughs> yes, like yes. more so than like if you go to Juilliard and you see the orchestra musicians, they don't, most of them don't care to play an orchestra. <laughs> but the marching band kids, like they're serious. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when I was in marching band, like I wanted to win city champs every year. Like that's all I cared about, winning city champs. And looking back, I'm like, why did I care so much about that? Absolutely, you yes. Know? Yeah, I, I get, and yes, I agree. And we had, we compete in a couple of, like every year we go to two big competitions. We did pretty good. Yeah. And the whole drill is because this guy was trained, so he would tell us how to do it. And again, we would train how to do it. But it's just, there are this type of standard marches, like Ayacucho, Matallana, like they're just tan, ta ta tan, ta ta tan, and again, it repeats. Will you ever play like Western music? Uh, ever? For the marching band? It, so this is what is strange. We were doing this like very martial army like marches. And then the big influence of Ska, we were doing Matador, which is a song, Ska song from this Argentinian band called Los Oblos Los Cadillacs. And that was just so ingrained because of the culture of the section leaders and the drum major. And then we added another song by them, Malbicho. And then we started to do like more, when the introduction of these instruments, we started to do cumbia, we did, we did salsipues, no, poca. It's not as it plays. It's Be You're going to get me copyright strike. Boquita <laughs> Sala, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, doesn't it? Oh, God, I forgot. But, but were, you, were you thinking ever when you were doing all this musical stuff, like with all these kids? Because I, I, I know that for me, it was always like, I always had composing in my back of my mind, but I always like didn't really want to like put that as the front and center thing that I do. It was like always like very like self-conscious, like, oh, you know, I, I play this instrument, this, but this is not really what I want to do. I rather, I rather write for all of you. Um, Did that ever uh, cross your mind while you were in band, or was composing like a bit after that? I feel that what really changed my life in band is feeling accepted in a group mm. or being part of a culture of friends. Because yeah. like all of my high school friends that I still talk to. Most of them were in the marching band, like Ana Olena did clarinete and also was one of the, I don't know, that's more British, but the little stick that they toss around. And oh, the rifle people, the, the, the color, not the color guard. The, but similar to color guard. The dance, like a dance team. Um, there is a better word for it, yes, but I yes. know what you're talking about. But the people that are they have like not the musicians, the, yes. the, the more the choreography part of it, the dancers. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yes, um, but this is like from, and I remember this a lot is because this teacher showed us, oh, this is a British tradition. And he, he would show us that and I can see it, like you just like you can see, it. I mean, I'm sorry for, I don't have the reference. <laughs> I know. <It's> okay. <laughs> so, and now Elena was a clarinet player. Ah, and there was like this huge drama about the new instruments because I wanted to play sax. And they were like, no, you're a really good trumpet player. We don't want to lose you in the trumpet, right. so you go to relearn a new. And I was really pissed. I'm like, I wanted the saxophone. And but the trumpet is like 
probably more needed in a marching band than oh, saxophone. Absolutely. You can't really hear it as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so with these new instruments, we start to see uh, music sheet. I never really liked the music sheet because I relied a lot on my memory. So I, what I would do is write the notes like do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do, or so, so, like C, uh, like C sharp, do sostenido, like the little hashtag, <laughs> <laughs> and or bemol with the flats, and then I would write the numbering. Like so, you know, you know, you know, you knew the solfege, you just didn't know uh, what it looks like with standard music notation. Yeah. So you know do re mi fa sol, you know all those things, but you didn't know that okay, that dot on this line is sol. I like right? it, is that what you mean? It was the basics. Like I knew the five stay the, the five lines on the stave, I knew my G clef and where it was. It's just for me my, my brain is not practical yeah. to think about rhythm that way. Because for me rhythm at the time and still now it is something that you feel within your body. Really? Instead okay. of instead of being like I understand notation translate that, but I don't think you can feel it when you see it. Mm -hmm. I feel like all the senses in music are, maybe it was my training that visually I could not connect with my body, like seeing a visual cue to say my body to do something, it never made sense. Like for me it was something, you feel it, you learn it, you do it. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a memory practice in that sense. So I would see the sheet, music sheet and I would write the, the number, the trumpet numbers and the, notes but i would not <laughs> the, the, the sheet music part does that make sense yeah i know it makes sense i mean i didn't learn that way at all it was the complete i was very like oh i want to i don't know why but when i was like seven i wanted to just i wanted to write music like mozart like that was my thing even though like there's no classical music yeah. anything in my family and you know none of that it's just like oh this is the way you're supposed to do it uh -huh. you have to learn how to read so when i played piano it was to read the music i didn't even care uh, I didn't want to compose anything until I could read the music. It wasn't like, okay, here, give me a piano and let me just improvise. It was like I had to know what I was reading and that's always been ingrained in me from the beginning. So to hear like this for me is like actually a breath of fresh air. And a lot of people at Columbia are like this, mm -hmm. at Columbia University <laughs> are like this, um, that they don't, they, or they don't, I'm actually a little bit jealous of it because I, I am like so held to the page and what, I write down, that's it, and like it kind of blocks my mind off to other possibilities. But while I was at Juilliard, it was the opposite. It was like everything that you want to do, you need to make sure you precisely write it down and you mm -hmm. need to explain it. And it was like this kind of more like traditional, uh, maybe Beethoven mentality to, mm -hmm. to writing. Like it has to be written on the page or else it doesn't exist. Which actually is funny that I say that because he also didn't put a lot of metronome yeah, yeah, markings yeah, and, yeah. and dynamics <laughs> and things like this. Uh, a lot of them were like this as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's. I mean, I feel it is. It could be. I don't know if it's a cultural thing. But I mean, I, when I say culture, I mean the group of people that are immediate in your passing, like your social context. I'm not saying like the country or religion or. Um, and also because when these new instruments came to marching band, I was becoming the new leader section for the woodwinds, for the winds in general. Mm. So I had to make sure that I knew first. So I need to learn 
quick so I can teach. Oh, right, because you got to teach the sixth graders exactly. coming in. Uh, exactly. And because of that reason, I, I cannot bother learning the rhythm. I need to learn it so I can teach and pass it down. And it was the first time, because all the time everything was homophonic, not homophonic, but monophonic. Like, the, we don't have, like, I don't know if Like there was you, no harmony? Uh, no harmony, it was just notes. like percussion and monophony. Yeah. So like the, the, the tan, da, da, tan, da, da, tan, in our marching band then, it was just everyone, and like every bugle horn, every pocket, tump, pocket trumpet and trumpet was playing the same notes. Wow, okay, that's very different than the, the, <laughs> yes, the than, yes. than any other wind band I've heard. Yeah, it's always like four or five parts, going, yeah. counterpoint sometimes going on. And then I, in eighth grade, it was like introduction of second and third voices, which is also like, oh, wow, this is also, it's possible. Yeah. And from then, I really got into it and I started like listening to ska songs from Los Elefantes, Dr. Crapula, uh, La Savera Matacera, like all of these um, escabiosis, uh, escampida, like any group. And I would try to learn the trumpet solos. Uh, and my favorite was from Los Elefantes, uh, a group from my, my, my hometown, Bogota, and this song called Peche, which is about like really hardcore tobacco without a filter kind of <laughs> song. Yeah. And, it's, and, and the song is inspired by this Eastern European song movie so it's like a cover but made up lyrics in spanish and it has like this really crazy soviet slash like thing from that area of the world and that was my favorite solo to just and i learned it by memory so i learned this all of these solos um uh for my personal like for my own enjoyment uh, the other thing that I would do for my own enjoyment was just drawing a lot of anime. Like Sailor Moon was my thing, and Evangelion was my thing. Like, kind of really weird mix of a girl. Like, I, now that I think about it, they're kind of particular. So, yes, the trumpet solos were for that. And then I became a section leader, and in 10th grade, I became the drum major. So, I started directing. The How long was the, like, was it till 12th grade? Is that the highest? 11th. 11th grade. So, you were, so there were some people that were 11th graders in the band then, I'm assuming, and you were in 10th grade. Yeah. So, there's a little bit of friction, I'm assuming, at that age when someone is younger than you as, as the boss. I, I think, I think more than that is the style of how you would lead and it was a nice taste of me like I'm I take things seriously but obviously sometimes I do not so it was this so that would rub people the wrong way like people like we have to start at this time like more punctual and I'm like yes but relax like I was the opposite as drum major <laughs> I was a bad drum major <laughs> I mean, I think I was decent, but I, I wasn't having, f I definitely made it less fun. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was definitely like way too, let's win, let's win at all costs. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't think the others in my year or even a year below were like on board with that, mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. that, with that vision. Mm -hmm. So that kind of 
so my like I, I guess I wasn't a good leader in that way because I wasn't able to put my vision with everybody else. It's just that I had a vision that was like singular, mm. and nobody else wanted to go along with it. So it it created a lot of friction in terms of like because people didn't like. I used to get along with everyone before uh -huh, I was drum uh, yeah, major, yeah, yeah. and then as soon as I became drum major, like you know, it you can always I can always feel that there was some tension, and I just didn't know like what to do. Like I didn't have uh, maybe I don't know what it was, but I just and you're 17 years old at that time. It's, you don't know how yeah, to I mean, how, how to lead. You know, it's you're 17. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Uh, but you always seem to 15, you had the opposite uh, yes, approach, yes, which yes. probably was more smart. <laughs> Well, but you still have a group of people that I think that's when you learn not everyone's going to like you and your style and how you're going to deal with that and be okay with it because yeah. that's something that is going to be going for the next. Because I feel that I was perceived that I was more talent than practice, which in a way it could be true. <laughs> um, like I was committed to the band because, I mean, the like... When I heard that the, that the nuns canceled the program, like this was around 2012 or 2010, like I had to sit down and cry because it was such a huge part of my life. Yeah. Like for six years, like going Mondays, I'm lying, Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays were like practice, like band practice. Yeah, that's a big part of your, I mean, same here. It was like this too. I mean, all the music, I was part of the orchestra in high school also. Not always, but I would play clarinet if they needed me. And then also the jazz band, they had a yeah. jazz band and I would, oh. I would go in like at six in the morning, we had jazz band oh. practice. Yeah. Intense. Yeah, it was really intense. I was playing piano, but I mean, band is like that. Um, band uh, has these, it ingrains something in people. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what makes people go crazy when they're in band. <laughs> also, like they have this kind of frenetic energy when they're in band that like can't really be replicated hmm. with that many other activities in high school. Like, I don't know, there are people in the science bowl, people in, um, you know, people that play golf or people that play <laughs> basketball. Or, uh -huh. or, but there's something about being in the band that is completely like frenetic. That's the best, that's the best word I can think of. I don't know. And it's like, common like with every, not just one school, but all the schools. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. Hearing it from you. Especially in another country. very similar. Yeah, another country. Like what you're saying, I can connect with mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. easily. It's yeah. it, like it was yesterday I was in band. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it was a huge, and the other thing that happened in ninth grade was uh, we had a new music teacher, uh, Jose Luis Medellin, and he was like, yo, there are other ways of making music. Let me introduce you to really how to make an arrangement. So we had this hit my last year of high school, or yes, and we are all, God, now it's blurring down, it's blurring. It was 10th grade or 11th grade, but he did an arrangement for Oye Como Va. And it was the first time that I felt like a musician because everyone was playing their own part and everyone is grooving like and you're doing with trumpet and the entrance was great and the last big arrangement that he made as just sitting down oh, and that's the other thing that happened between eighth and ninth grade we're trying to establish the wind band 
Oh, like the like, the, con like yes. the concert band, because uh, now sitting properly to, yes. in a circle and yes, and yes, yes. presenting a show, not yes. outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what is crazy to think about is like this year is the first time in Jazz Al Parque. So Colombia, Bogota has this huge cultural thing that started in the 90s with Rock Al Parque, which is the biggest festival of rock for, that you can attend for free in Latin America. And it, it was huge, huge, huge. Well, I think it's still huge. And then it became Jazz Al Parque, like another genres became like their own festival. And this year, Jazz Al Parque, for the first time, it had an all-girl jazz band for the, ever in Colombia. And the fact that we were starting a little wind symphony in a school at 2000, 2002, it's kind of like, wow, we, like maybe nobody knew it was just our parents and our friends, but the fact that, okay, there's been something trying to make. Yeah, some, not improvement, but development maybe yes, is, yes. is the right word for it. Yeah. And it's like, wow, it's good to see that now in Colombia are, they're doing this like projects and I mean like growing up in this way is because I mean I grew up in the in the states so I like these western instruments are all that I knew I never thought okay there this is just the instruments that we play I mean did did it ever cross your guys's mind or your girls's mind I guess <laughs> that oh these are these are not our instruments these are like foreign instruments that we've just been handed like I'm so curious because you were there, and then you came, you spent a lot of your life in the U.S., so now that all kind of goes full circle. Well, at the time, you, I didn't even know that. I mean, I knew Mozart and Beethoven existed, but I didn't know about hiding. Or I, at the time, it was just like, I'm doing this for fun. Let's see what it is. I like music. Like, I wasn't thinking about... And it's like, oh, I'm good at this. Why I should continue mm. it? So I never like really thought about political or issues with music. I would think about it more in the broad sense of international affairs. You know, like uh, I would like my school was really good at humanism, geography, geopolitics. Why? I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but and the, the American schools are not known for this. So, <laughs> so we like I knew like the, 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 the like the US and Europe and because education at the time it was like yes Cristobal Colon discovered America and then it's like no, actually, no, that's not how it happened. So we learned a little bit about that it wasn't discovered. And, but we never, I never, at least in school, we, we never were taught to tie it together back yeah. to music, to, to really see it critically, or we're just, just hanging out, we're just grooving. <laughs> right, and it just happened to be the, the apparatus yeah, that we're yeah, doing yeah, it by. Yeah. It almost doesn't matter what it is you're holding. It's just something that is binding you guys together mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. making some, sign of, some kind of sound. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, one thing interesting that I heard from you, I, I, was, I was watching an interview uh, that you did uh, uh, about Beethoven, and I oh. thought it was so interesting because I have a very similar kind of thing that happened. I mean, you, you were, uh, I don't know if you remember you talking about this, but you were saying that there was some song that you heard in Colombia 
there was a melody in it, and you associate it with that particular song, mm-hmm. but really it's a song, it's a, it's a piece by Beethoven, oh, and you right. didn't know that, um, yeah, 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 yeah. that this was a Beethoven. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I would I'd love to hear a little bit more about this, because uh, I have a, a very similar thing huh. with Mozart. Oh, yeah. I see. I don't remember what piece is this, but I think if I remember correctly, or what is coming to mind right now is there is this really huge Mexican comedian mm-hmm. called Roberto Gomez Bolaños. And he would do sketches of this uh, vecindario or like these scenes from the hood uh, or like neighborhood kind of setting. Uh, he would have like the kind of comedy, like a comic, funny Mexican superhero. Uh, no, he was, I'm sorry, he was um, actually an, a Mexican superhero according to uh, the social context from that time, it's 1970s, okay. 1980s. And the opening is Beethoven, but it's, it's in a synth. Like, dun, 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 well, I might be out of key, um, but kind of like that. And uh, it was really playful. I never thought it was Beethoven until like discovered, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. So you heard that the, the actual Beethoven, you're like, wait, hold on. There's something going on here. <laughs> this is like, and I, or I don't know if I might have heard it, but I think I read like, oh no, this actually the producer, the guy, the creator of El Chapulín Colorado, which is the name of the... And El Chavo, the cre- like Roberto Gomez Bolaño, actually picked this song. Like he knew where's it coming from. We just we never were taught because again we think strings and pianos are old, older music. Right. But this was a thing in, in right. the opening. So in a new it context. was it was hard to connect the dots. Yeah, I mean, I just heard this rap song. Um, uh, they were using. Um, La Campanella, they were using the Paganini uh-huh. uh, in it. And I was like, but they were using the actual violin oh. sample. They, they didn't make, they didn't like synthesize it. Uh-huh. It was like straight up like Paganini. It sounded crazy. I mean, it sounded good, but it was still like, you know, people are, um, people don't care about, you know, I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is people outside of our like academic circle, yeah. they don't, I don't, I'm not sure if they actually think about these things as closely as we do like we yeah, put them yeah. at such I mean I'm saying something that's probably against the grain of academic how our academic um, you know colleagues think about these kind of things but I, I don't see this as a huge concern outside of our circles like people are barring people without without any uh, regard I don't whether it's right or wrong I don't know but they're doing it and um, there's this other example of a Jay-Z song, Big Pimpin, oh. <laughs> that uses a like sample from an old Arabic song ah. from like the 1940s. It, and the first time I heard it, I was like, what the, what the heck? This is Arabic music, and it's, <laughs> it's Jay-Z, and it was weird. And, but, you know, that's what, that's what it was. He just took it, and, and, and that was it. And, but there was, there was no, there was a little bit of a lost bill, but it, but it was settled, and, and, uh, Things move on. Nothing happened to Jay Z. He's still like a billionaire, and yeah, yeah, you know yeah. he's still doing like he didn't get canceled for that. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. so I just think it's it's really interesting to hear you know this Beethoven story when you when you said it yeah, in that interview. There was this Feirouz song. Uh, Feirouz is big Lebanese. She's a huge Lebanese singer, uh-huh, uh-huh. and she has this song. 
It's like it's like all in Arabic. I don't I don't remember the Arabic lyrics, but it's like straight up Mozart, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nobody over there knows it's Mozart. You know, they think it's yeah, Feruz. Yeah, yeah. When they hear it, it's like, oh, that's Feruz. You know, that's not Mozart. And it just became Arabic music, just like that, because mm-hmm. Feruz sang it, and like yeah, she yeah. she took it for herself. It, it, it's almost not like it's. I wouldn't even call it like Westernization. It's almost like she 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 took it and made it her own mm-hmm. instead of like oh she was colonized you know so it's just i mean did jc took this sample from fadus or that's a difference no it was a different uh different um different artist um i think it was abdul halim hafiz yeah different person but it was yeah. from earlier on like the yeah. 30s 40s hmm. and it was just the 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 musical background it wasn't the, the the no voice in it yeah well what is very interesting about Mozart and this really like how I see or try to listen to Mozart really changed when I went to Turkey this past winter and I went to this cultural center uh, and they were displaying uh, Turkish music and it was a sheet music and it was the manuscript. And I started like sight reading in my mind and I'm like, hold on, <laughs> this sounds like Mozart. And then it's like Mozart, Rondo, uh, the, the Turkish March, Turkish March uh, Idomeneo. And I'm like, hold on, homeboy was borrowing <laughs> from here. And I'm like, why? They have a different tuning and they have different scales. And it's like Mozart is making this his own, like the influence. Uh, especially at the time, the Ottoman Empire was big. It was like yeah, revered. Yeah, that was the thing. Yeah. And it was the huge central culture. Uh, uh, all of this, uh, you have Muslims, you have Christians, you have Jews trading there, more broadly cultural center, and a lot of more interchange with Germanic lands. Uh, so I can see, like, now I try to, when I listen to Mozart, I try to look for the Turkish thing. Right. Because I'm sure he was borrowing from it. Yeah, it was way more of an influence on the global culture than, like, yeah, Turkey yeah. is now, yeah, for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, wow, like, how interesting it would be to listen to Mozart with a, tune, a Turkish tuning system. Like, would it be closer to actual... Uh, Turkish classical music or like I wanna I wanna know what that sounds like uh, because you talk about Feroz like of course that the, the motif is similar is the same but the tuning is gonna make the difference yeah I mean it, it sounds pretty equal tempered to be mm-hmm. honest when she sings it sounds pretty similar yeah. but when you got the you know, the drums in the background and yeah. the strings they would the strings they do this kind of like heterophonic thing when they play, like they're not all like bowing at the same time. They're all playing the same music, but it's not like completely the same bowing or the same ornaments. So there is like elements of it that brings you out of the Mozart. But I mean, this is kind of something that, um, that I, that I deal with all the time in my stuff, my music, because it's like, I'm, there are, there are some pieces where I literally am like, what if Bach was born in Alexandria? You know, like, what if he was actually born there and, like, he had all the talent that he had, you know, in Leipzig, but he was just in a different place. Like, what would that be like? And, you know, so I I put those questions in my mind and it's more like a 
it's more like an exercise more than like thinking about geopolitics yeah, or thinking yeah, about yeah. like the implication of what I'm doing. It's just, it's just like a, a fantasy in my head, like and trying to make it reality. Mm-hmm. So some of my, that's why I think, you know, maybe it's a little against the grain, but it's like, I feel like all these things are fair game for anybody to use, no matter where you're from. Um, as long as you have some sort of reason for doing it and not like just to throw paint at the wall or yeah. just to cause like a fuss, like, like you actually have some kind of fantasy. Yeah. I think that's a word that Haas uses a lot, like, fan, <laughs> like having a fan, uh, like literal fantasy or spiritual, uh, spirituality around it. Yeah. Something like almost otherworldly about why you're doing this because like why else are we composing like yes. we, it's it's like we, there's more music is not really needed yeah, right yeah, you yeah. know we have a, so many <laughs> thousands millions of hours yes. of music out there the other thing that i've learned like just going about that i've been watching these vice documentaries on how this song was made so you have like the song song you have Wasn't Me by Shaggy, like you have Cisco or Shaggy. So it's looking really a little bit like, it's really nice to see how a song is produced in a very pop culture like, because what you find is that somebody else has done something similar with the same motive and you're bringing it to life. And then you see another person adding another thing and the other person adding another thing. And the funny thing about the thong song is that the violin is kind of created. He's on that. Just the intensity of the song. And then uh, how these two guys, like just one mistake that the, the, the song that these two guys made uh, was the base for the thong song. And that song was meant to be shared with Michael Jackson and not with Cisco, but that was a mistake and Cisco liked it. And it's this whole drama. And then you are the violinist and how the video, and it's like, I want this half a step modulation climax. And then when you listen again to the song, I just, it has this huge more value because yeah. it's a group of people teaming up and getting ideas. and. Um, and they have like they were sued by Ricky Martin's group because they quote living la vida loca. Oh, they do. Well, yeah, that's a big, yeah. <laughs> that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So there was this too, and because of that line, but it's the fact that you're getting some of these ideas as a group and getting together, which I really value in popular music, and I kind of wish in an academic setting we could do more, like a group of people composing one thing together and create this synergy. Because as a composer, we are very lonely until the rehearsals. When, there, when we're almost wish we were lonely yeah. <laughs> at that time, like, well, there's too many people here. <laughs> yeah, 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 like, and it's just, and of course you have collaborative process of, oh, I go to the musician and then we ask and we talk and that's good, but it's not a continuous energy going and flow. It's more of a one time and you go back, retract, and maybe try, but it's not continuous. It's not, I don't know, it's not. Well, I mean, for the, some of the composers that have like re- ongoing relationships with the same ensemble, I mean, they can, they have that kind of luxury of trying out like similar ideas and like, what's the next chapter of that yeah, idea? Yeah. And they kind of understand their language yeah. and they move on. but that's like a very 
particular scenario. Yeah, and I feel that's that's been harder to establish in academic settings. Uh, I know that I'm bashing to come at academic settings or ensembles. Like, it's hard to be a musician in the U.S. Like, to keep up an ensemble, it's a whole full job. But also you have to teach so you can eat. <laughs> and you also have to go to gigs so you can eat. And, of course, one person cannot do it all. Like, you cannot do it, like, direct an ensemble, be the artistic director of ensemble, play in our ensembles and like it's I understand why there are some like cracks because everyone is doing what they can with what they have. When you say cracks you mean like like feel like 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 they're not uh, they're thinning themselves out so some some parts of yes, their yes. thing are not as good as you would think that they would be yes. at. like yeah I think I know what you're saying like you know your teacher your director of an ensemble your uh, your composer, your maybe a sound engineer yeah, on the side, yeah. but like maybe people notice that oh, you're not like showing up to your teaching on time, or maybe yeah. not grading. Uh, yeah, and like uh, everything takes priority again with the time you have when you can do it. Yeah. So, so also being artistic director for an ensemble, you have to do PR, and PR is social media, and social media is an old old job one a whole one job by itself that if you really you have to schedule your posts then the whole admin thing like it's you it's don't have to tell me, you have to tell me. <laughs> it's a lot of work and so i think because we are all where we are at least in academia we're so thin out we cannot create this energy collaborative energy as intensely as we could yeah I noticed that too. I noticed that everybody, including my, myself included, we're like kind of like in our own silos. Like everyone is doing like something completely different that is like has nothing to do with the other person, mm -hmm. which is a good thing for like diversity, mm -hmm. right? But for the whole like community aspect, it becomes it, it becomes yeah. difficult. So like sometimes diversity makes it um, difficult for the the other uh, facets. But I I mean I still think diversity is better than the, the other way around, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there are uh, issues that come with it, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. you're highlighting some of these things. And the other thing about diversity, that I'm all pro, of course, because I have to be thankful of the opportunities that I've been given um, and recognize my, my space and my privilege on that. My biggest criticism to the whole diversity push that is coming from an institutional perspective in which institutions look better, must look better. But institutions are not thinking, are these people feeling okay in this environment? Is this friendly for them? Is this a space where they can create? Is this, do they feel valuable, valuable here? Like there is not this human thing, it's like, we want you in a poster. You look great in our poster. Oh, you are so ethnic. Yes, we love that. And yes, we are diverse. And yeah. the, the, the poster doesn't show many realities behind, which is like maybe the person doesn't feel comfortable in the environment. Maybe the environment is actually very hostile. Maybe 
So it's not centered on the people who need the support, it's centered on how the institution looks. And that's my biggest criticism with, yeah. with the whole diversity push, which I, I strongly believe should be shifted to uh, the needs of these people who we are trying to include. Yeah. I mean, on the other side of that, I'm not, not, I'm not playing devil's advocate, but just <laughs> on the other side of that, because I've met with a lot of these, especially orchestra, because I do a lot of orchestra, is these people that work for orchestra, they also struggle, and I'm talking about the admin, they also struggle with, with what we were talking about earlier, that they have to also wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. So then the cracks also start to happen with, with those folks. So we think as these composers that are like, basically freelancers, right, mm -hmm. in this space, because we're just, or even if you want to say independent contractor, <laughs> you know, we are, we're there and then we're, then we're out. Yeah. You know, we come for a week and then we're out and then not to play devil's advocate and all of that, um, because you're, what you're saying is definitely true. But from their side, I can also see it because I've met a lot of those people and they also have to wear a lot of hats and the cracks start to go through just like what we were talking about earlier. And I actually was talking to a conductor very recently, like in the last couple of weeks. And I remember telling him, you know, you guys, we we're talking about the diversity situation also with, with him. Um, he's not, uh, like he, he's from another country as well. And, uh, you know, so he, he, he and I kind of agree, uh, kind of align in some of these things. But I was telling him, you know, your job is not to make program decisions or like to decide like who your guest should be. You're the, you're the, you're the conductor, you know? You're, you're supposed to be in charge of the orchestra and you already also, whether you like it or not, are in charge of bringing money to the orchestra because you're the face. So you have to be with the patrons. And I mean, that's just part of the job of being a conductor. And then on top of that, you have to decide on what the music is gonna be for the next two, three, four seasons, who your commissions are gonna be. How are you gonna do that? Like, how are, how are you gonna actually do that in a fair way? Because there's no way you have time to sit there and listen to 500 pieces, mm -hmm. that, you know what I mean? And so I was telling him that I don't know why orchestras don't, I'm uh, not trying to just say this about orchestras, but that's what I have experience with. It's like, why don't they just hire like a new music advisor? You don't even have to pay them that much. It's a part-time basis, you know, like a few hours a week or whatever it is. And, and these people uh, have their ear to the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you were like a new music advisor for an orchestra, it doesn't have to be the New York Phil or whatever. It could be anything. It could be because there's so many great regional orchestras yeah. in the U.S. as well, or, you know, even in other countries. Why, you know, why can't, what's stopping them from hiring you? to be their ear to the ground. It's like, oh, you know, so-and-so's piece I just heard, you know, you should at least consider it, or this person's piece. And then it becomes less about you being like composer in residence and more about you being like helping other people that you know get, um, get in with this institution. It, it, it creates a bridge that I don't think would be like that much of a cost to the institution. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it kind of, helps both sides. I don't know what you think about that, but it was something that this guy, like, it was just like it turned on a light when I told him. It was like, I can't believe nobody has thought of that, but... Um. I mean, but I think part of it, that is the culture that I kind of criticize in contemporary classical music is that it relies on people to be self-taught, 
taught in like you have to have like if you want to have a good portfolio you should have a really good audio if you want to have a good audio you should have you should learn how to record you should know how to mix you should know how to edit and make it as professional as possible because if you put your portfolio with not great audio your portfolio has lesser chance to make it to the next phase oh yeah absolutely yeah. Um, so it's like not only you have to be the composer you have to be the engineer and engineering is not so it's not only mixing or editing it's also mastering um, so that in itself it's you're, you're wearing two hats and then you have to apply to grants so you become your own grant grant writer yeah and then you have to show up to concerts because you need to meet people so you can network and greatness and that's the other thing that i kind of don't like is just concerts the after concert is not as fun as i what it was for me like six years ago like see my friends uh it's more like what are you up to what are you writing what is your next project like i just <laughs> and it's hard not to ask those questions too because like you haven't seen them in a while and and that's kind of like the go-to thing you want to know about first before knowing about oh how was your day or yeah, you know, yeah, what did yeah. you eat yesterday or do you want to go yeah. somewhere or whatever yeah and, and that's part of the reason we're doing this because <laughs> i don't think i've ever talked to you this long before yeah, yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. so absolutely. I, and it's a shame on me but also it's like you said, it's part of the system. Like yeah. we're like we, we like we literally have to like um, create friction in that system mm -hmm. uh, for to make these kind of things happen. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, me sure. putting up the lights—that's friction. Putting this camera, posting it on YouTube, <laughs> picking you up from the station. <laughs> I mean, these are all moments of friction yeah, yeah, for yeah. that. You know, somebody doesn't need to do, but unfortunately, that's especially in the U.S. These are like if you want to do something outside the norm, I think that's you have to kind of be the friction yourself and it's really scary but um i think that's i think that's kind of what's the the problem you know that the that you have to like throw like almost like an allen wrench in it to to do something different absolutely yeah i agree completely and i think that's the way to go because i feel that for a long time uh we have relied too much on big names to make the filter you know what's considered good or bad and then why we know so very little composers when in reality we know like just friends of ours could be between the two of us at least 200 people like if we started like thinking who do we just know? composers just composers just composers and they're all gonna be good yes they're not like you know they're all gonna be good yeah, and they've yeah. done stuff and several pieces and yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, that's what we need to do. Just question, why do we think this name has this value? Like, what, what is attached to it? What is the history of it? What is the name of the institution? You know, it's just backtracking to see, okay, maybe we can take this way out and create our, our own niche and space. And that's a hard thing to do when you've been trained, especially, I don't know about you, but in conservatories. Yeah. It's, you need to do four-part writing. You need to do a score reading. And yes, these things are super valuable and they're great, great skills. And yes, it will make you a better musician. But why do we stop improvising in the 1700s? Because we like too much in the score. And now we have this huge improvisatorial 
movement and then classical musicians are, I feel like, um, they're catching up. Yeah, myself included. Yeah. I, if you tell me to improvise, I, when I was in jazz band, um, I, I was asked to improvise, and it's so embarrassing. I, I took, you know, I put all the chords up there with the with the with the uh-huh. with the voicings that I wanted, and I never improvised the voicings, uh-huh. even when I was comping. And like, that's definitely, I'm definitely one of those people that I, I can't like. If you tell me to improvise, I'll be like, oh God, I don't know what to do. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was never part of growing up in this uh-huh. like conservatory mindset. And that reminds me of uh, another person that I was really important when I was at the Boston Conservatory, and that's Pierre Hurel, this French pianist that taught improvisation for classical musicians. And it was just like, let's jam. And he would have a system. And he would say, okay, the first class, if it is like 10 or 12 people, it's just like two groups. And we are gonna treat, we're gonna play just one note, and you're gonna pick one note only. You're not going to know which note is everybody playing, but you're just going to play one note. And you're going to treat it as the most careful thing. Mm. And like it's your child. And when you bring your child to the school bus, you need to make sure it has everything it needs. A little scarf. And it would do like uh, uh, this kind of <laughs> signs. Very cute. And I took this class like two or three times because you can retake it. And each semester was different because the people change. And you start like opening up your ears for the other note the other person is playing. And as class advanced, you added more notes. Uh, the, 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 the professor added more notes. So it was just two notes or three notes. And then the ensembles became smaller. And did the, did the idiom, I hate to use that word, the idiom of the the language, did it ever like sound like anything in particular, like any school of thought, like, or like how did that, I'm like, like once you start adding more notes, people start to gravitate towards like sounding like Mozart or sounding like Coltrane or sounding like. It was a moment. Uh, I, there were like one of the funnest one is when I did with my friend Cliff, I think, I remember he was there and I was playing the piano. And I started doing a, a childish thing, like dun, 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 and it became this machine, and people started just going along and responding, and then the machine broke down. So the idiom, I mean, that was one way. It, it felt like a moment of music, a moment of experiencing sound and appreciating the sound. And that was one of the most successful moments. Another time, this huge trombone player, fantastic player, really knew his jazz. So I was in the piano again and I was trying to do sparse things because of course I've been training contemporary classical music and then just going strange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other sounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he just started doing like these huge jazz licks and everyone like the rest of the people who were improvising did not like try to keep up, but because there was an imposition of idiom, people didn't know how to. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, what I was thinking uh, of. And that was more of a... And the cool thing about this type of this class is that at the end of each improvisation, everyone should give their opinion and feedback in the most kind way. 
So you're not only you're learning to sit down and be audience and uh, listen, like deep listening, and learn how to give feedback in that kind, like ask questions and give feedback in a kind way. Like, I would like more of this. Like, and you can agree. And one of the feedbacks for that particular moment of this kid playing jazz uh, was like, we have to understand that music works like a language. And as a language, it has, there are many. And because you choose this one, not everyone knows the language, so they could not answer hmm. to you. And I'm like, wow, that's... Yeah, like if you're like speaking Spanish here and I'm speaking English the whole time, it's like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, yeah. yes. And it's like maybe someone who knows both languages can understand. Yeah. But again, it's, 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 that made me start thinking about diversity. And like more than diversity, inclusion. Like, yeah, the inclusion part of it is the part that I think kind of gets dialed down compared yeah. to the diversity part, which is yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Because uh, you mentioned about the institutions before, mm -hmm. how, you know, you, you, of course, it was diverse of them to bring you on, mm -hmm. but they, you didn't feel included. Exactly. So uh, there is a reason why it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, probably that last part is the most important because you, can yeah. uh, you can be any person and yeah, not, yeah, still yeah. not feel included. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yes, I absolutely agree. And that was the first time, like, the first, that was the first time that I understood why that every time there is this huge thing happening in the world, it happens to be tragic. And everyone that is a classical musician, older, I would say, or that are just, or beginners, and they go and quote Leonard Bernstein, and you're going to make louder and better music, and you know that quote? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> first of all, Music is not a single language, like everyone. It's not, yeah, it's, everyone uh, thinks it's about. a universal language. So, no, which that's... Is, it's definitely, <laughs> this is the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> like, <But it's, laughs> what do you mean classical music? Like, no, that's the least, if anything, because you have to, um, you have to know how to learn how to read. Yeah, there is that connotation that it's classical music, it's the universal music. Whereas, I mean, music, for music's sake, is, is generally universal. I mean, every culture basically has some version of music. Mm -hmm. But I think when they say that, they're meaning classical, you know, music, right? Oh, yes, and that time is just, okay, music is not a universal language, and we cannot codify it as such I was going somewhere but also I mean when you know, people are posting on social media and stuff like this I mean that's the other part of it and the other part of why I'm doing this and, and I don't really post on Facebook or I mean I do I post pictures of this dog here on Instagram <laughs> I mean that's what it's for you can't have real discussions and I see people posting about really serious stuff on Instagram Facebook I'm like this is just not the way to to, to talk about these things and TikTok and whatever I mean um is this the way to talk about these things? I don't know, but to me, this is this is at least a, a step a, a step in a, in another direction. Um, That's the beauty of YouTube because of the format. Like the format could be expanded, and it has more nuance, like a conversation. Like, yeah. And you can see the whole uh, grayscale. Right. Like it's not. Uh, this is what's happened here, and this is what you can do. 
and then you just slide the shot. The yeah, I just, I just can. And I, I think also there's, there's something that those things do to your brain that mm -hmm. maybe because we're a little older, it didn't really hit us as hard because like we didn't really get Facebook until we were like in high school or something, middle school, maybe, maybe college, college yeah, <laughs> high school for me. Yeah, but yeah. it was like, so it probably didn't affect our brains as much. At that time, Facebook wasn't like what it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we didn't have Instagram and TikTok no, no, and all that no, stuff. No. So I don't know. Our brains probably weren't as affected. But I mean, I could see it in my, my younger cousins and stuff. Like, you know, this stuff is not, is not great. And, and what is this going to do to us and our music? Because yeah, yeah. we sit there and we make these pieces that are like, they're not three minute long pop songs, you know, mm -hmm. even like I've seen six, seven minutes, which is a short to us. Yeah. This is a long piece to people. Yeah, yeah, to us, yeah. it's like, oh my God, six, seven minutes. Like I want to write something longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's that kind of also scares me a little bit. It's like, like, I wonder what this will do to our field. Like, will people be writing shorter and shorter pieces? I mean, so far, I don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. I see people still writing like these, you know, uh, 10, 15 minute pieces generally speaking but um, it has gotten shorter like i went to this concert in the new york field marcus balter was there it was commissioned so it was like the big opening of the season i guess like that concert and the other composer that was there oh it was also daniel leon and john adams and the huge contrast is that the Marcus Balter piece and the Tanya Leon piece are relatively shorter than the John Adams piece. The John Adams piece is 30 minutes. And Which John Adams piece was it? The, um, was it the father piece? The, yes. It wasn't Harmonalia. It no, was no, something no. about the... I've heard this piece before, but I don't remember the title. My father was some anecdote Related about his father. To... Charles Ives or yes. something like this. Yes. Possibly. Yeah, I have heard this piece. Though. It's uh, long, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, that, and that was commissioned in the 90s. And now yeah, it's an old piece, yeah. And yeah, this yeah. is 2022, and they commissioned Marcus, and it's a 15-minute piece. So there has been changes on timing, or like, I, I, um, yes, I, I would say that. And also it's contextual. This is like the American context, yeah. which European context is another, another different... Uh, uh, just a space and attitude towards notated music. <clears throat> so I would say in the American space, I think it's going, like it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And the other thing that is happening with TikTok, with, with pop artists, is that they write a soundbite. And if people like it in TikTok, people ask to finish the song. So they make it longer. Really? I didn't know this. So yeah. they like write like a little part of the song yeah, yeah, yeah. and then people if, like if, it and if, they if finish the song. If vitals finish the song. So they, they're, they're spreading this, they're releasing the song before it's even done. Yes. <laughs> That's crazy. And then but what labels are doing is that we are not going to give you a deal if you're not an influencer. Yes. Because they want someone that is able to move yes. people. And that's why Doja Cat is such a huge hit because she plays with TikTok really well and she has millions of followers. Yes. I mean, that makes sense. I don't know if every label will be like that. But these people that do this on TikTok or whatever, what's stopping them from starting their own uh, company? Why do they even need to be with a label? Like, what do they need that for? But this could... is very young people that don't know the industry. Yes. 
that they're yes. just trying to make music. But I'm just thinking five, ten years mm -hmm. down the line, like what's stopping these people from having their own mini companies? I mean, like Chance the Rapper does this, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, um, and I mean, I feel the same way with us as composers, you know, I wonder if there's a time where composers will become influencers or this kind of thing. And uh, I'm just spitballing here, you know, who the heck knows, but, and they start their own publishing houses or they're doing their, they, they become institutions. They're the ones commissioning. They're the ones like having the cards rather than like an orchestra or like an academic institution. Like to me, that's the positive part about all of this stuff. Yes, absolutely. Is that I agree. It, it, it takes the power back to the creators. Mm -hmm. I mean, but then, like you said, it will it takes someone that sees that they cannot do everything on their own. Like they're going to have to hire people, and then, then they have to, then they become a business and an institution uh -huh. and themselves. And, and what is going to stop them from becoming like? Uh, an, ac an academic institution or an orchestra like what's going to stop them from becoming the thing they wanted to replace yeah, yeah, so yeah. i'm just this is the kind of stuff i think about you know <laughs> no absolutely <laughs> and it's just it depends how ideology like it depends on your ideology right if you are more financially oriented which is i'm not saying that is good or bad or wrong or right there is no such a thing it's just well everybody is financially oriented Yes, um, we well, all need. Uh, we, all, yes. we all need to have some money but, uh, to do what we what we do. But I would say the attitude, like for example, Murat and I, my husband, uh, great master engineer. <laughs> uh, the details down below. <laughs> yeah, down in the description below, of course, and DMR's uh, web SoundCloud and website down in the description below. <laughs> Um, we have very attitude, different attitudes when it comes to work. I'm the type of person, I do my work, I get it done, and then I'm chilling. Like, very transactional in a way. I don't know, it's because time has passed. When you say chilling, do you mean like during the time of the day or like you work like, I don't know, two weeks straight all day, all night, and then like you take like a week off? Kind of. That this, The latter way? Not the... No, uh, the... The latter, yeah, the one, the second one. That you the said. second one. Okay, yeah. so like more like burn yourself to the ground and then take a, yes. get a fire out of that exactly. phoenix out of the ashes yeah, yeah, yeah. way. Like See, I'm not. I'm more the formal way now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's yeah, good. Yeah. I I don't know, maybe it's an ADHD thing. Um, but Murat is so passionate that like he lives for his work, mm. and he loves doing that. He loves mastering. He loves spending time, making music, producing other music mixing, recording, like he's so passionate. He's like, there is so much to know and I need to know it all. Like this, like, I need to be the best. Like, and it's just this challenge with himself. And curiosity, and, yeah. Yeah, and curiosity. I'm like, my curiosity is my project at the moment and I'm gonna learn a lot and I know I'm gonna get better and whatever, but it's like, again, everyone has different approaches on how to make music. And for Murad is that, of course he wants to make money and whatnot, but his reward is the knowledge, while my reward is my free time. I see, yeah. So it's like, I don't want to be thinking about music in my spare time. I want to just be doing other things. Yeah. Straight up, just chilling, watching movies. Like really take my, because I'm also a really huge fan of things, so. Yeah, other things besides music. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm yeah. the same. I'm very similar in that way too. Um, so I think that attitude is very different. Uh, like I don't li like 
I love music, but I don't live for it. And again, it's just every relationship that you have, it just mutates. And this is at this point that I am like this. And maybe it's related to the fact that I'm still doing a doctorate program. Yeah. And that might change in the future when I'm out because it all depends. It's and you're like, still not in the... Um you're still not in your end phase. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, you're still not in that zone where it's like, okay, I know I'm going to do this for the next 10, 15 years, like this kind of schedule. Yeah, Whereas yeah. like my wife, you know, she just got this job at a law firm mm -hmm. and it looks like last three months, that's when she started. And to me, I can, as me as the husband, mm -hmm. I, I, I am like, I'm in the ebb and flow of it. Like, I feel like, okay, now I understand her schedule and how she works and and now I'm like kind of molded around that which I actually like because it gives me a lot of freedom to do this and whatever I want um, and I think that's the big problem with artists that especially when there's two together mm -hmm. is that they're it's not that they're both artists that's not the problem it's that there's this like what you're saying this constant change of what are the priorities in their art and what yeah. and um, of course, the financial part of it is, is there is part of it too, but it's that first part is like the scheduling mm -hmm. is always different. The priorities of what you care about in that time are always different because that's mm -hmm. that's part of being an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like it's very difficult if especially if both people are not in that. I, I don't end phase is kind of a weird way to say it, but like this at least a constant phase maybe yeah, is yeah, a better yeah. thing to say. You know. So I mean, sometimes like the the older you get. Oh, that's the hope that I just, I've been into the Taylor Swift <laughs> album. Like, I get older, but not wiser. I mean, the idea is that you get wiser. Anyways, I just remembered that. In any case, the older you get, or the, the, how you grow with your career, it's something that you have to accept. Like, you have to accept the attitude that you're in at that moment and stop struggling and judging yourself. Like, I'm not this type of composer. Like, I admire so many composers because I feel I lack those traits. That's an interesting way to, to, to look at it, though. Because, like, for, uh, um, I don't know, like, composers with huge careers that are so invested and the only thing they talk about and post about is being a composer in academia. And I'm like, I really admire that, but I cannot be that. That's also not reality. Yeah, probably. like you. Nobody knows what I do besides <laughs> this. You know what I mean? Or actually, probably nobody knows what I do. Period, because I'm out here in New Jersey. Nobody knows what I do. I could be just out in the backyard with Ivy the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody. You don't really know. No, um, it's, well, yes. You know, you see it on. That's that's the thing about social media is bad for our brains. Is that it creates these. I, I don't personally think that's very healthy, and. At least for me, when I see other people doing things that I, like what you said, like, oh, I can't ever do that. Or, um, I don't know, my first reaction, maybe it's just the way I grew up. My first reaction is, okay, how do they do that? You know, and is that something I actually want to do? And then I either do it or I just say, oh, that's not for me. And I just never think about it again. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I don't know if I can come up with a specific example for that. Um, no, I, I, think, I think I got you. But, yes. For example, like somebody gets signed with a publisher, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm like, you know, that's really great for them. You know, I'm really happy for them. But I don't think that could ever be, that could ever be me. Mm 
you know, and I would, I would look into it first, but okay, what is it actually like to be with the publisher? All right, they take 50% of your, uh, you know, of your royalties. They're going to take 90% of your sales. All right, they're going to have control over what your next commissions are. Oh, you know, you always have to check in with them and the, and the relationship is always like they're the superior, like you're, you're like their subordinate. It's not the other way around. Like you're working for them, not the other way. And I'm like, you know what, That's, that doesn't jive with my personality or what I want to be like. Mm -hmm. So that publisher thing is out the door, like I, for me, at least in my mind. Like, mm -hmm. I don't care, like, like I, it's not something I build towards. Like, it's just out of my system. Mm -hmm. But I, like, looked into it, like, actually, what do they actually do? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not for me, out of my system. Mm -hmm. So every time I see somebody getting published or whatever it's like, okay that's great for them that's probably good for their situation but it's not for me mm -hmm. uh, it's not like i don't get this feeling i'm like oh my god like i should be why is it why is it not me you know i don't no, get that uh, but i don't get it like that. i'm yeah. like wow they're so great i really admire they're like that mm, but i don't know that's i mean i part of it i think this fear of commitment like mm. like for example i don't want to like publishing house, mm, I don't want to tie it, tie it down yet. You know, yeah. like I want to see my options. Yeah. But it is there is a downside of looking for your options. Yes, then you then you're kind of like in no man's land exactly. when you're doing that. So you kind of have to decide, okay, what am I gonna do now? Mm -hmm. And you gotta stick with it. Yes. For, and then if it doesn't work out, then you kind of rehash things. But uh, I guess because I'm so, I, I guess my brain does work in a business way. I mean, yeah. for sure, because like when you're in a business, that's the plan is to stick with the plan. Yes. Like if you keep changing plan, you have no plan. Exactly. So stick with the plan for X number of years. And even if it's like, feels like it's not working out, you know, you have to stick to it. And then maybe three, four or five years down the line, all right, did this work? Did this not work? And be very honest. And if it didn't work out the door, yeah. like with this thing I'm doing with the YouTube thing, you know, it's been like six months. Mm -hmm. So far, it's going pretty good, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, maybe maybe in a year it'll it'll die, and then yeah. I'll be like, you know what? This wasn't, you know, this was fun. I had enjoyed myself, but Let's see. we got to move on if things are not uh, going in a positive direction. Yeah, and yeah, boom, yeah. out. At least I tried it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. and the other thing is that I actually do enjoy teaching, mm. and I've been doing a lot of. Uh, this year, for some reason, NYU didn't have enough TAs. So they asked Columbia and I'm like, okay, yeah, why not? I mean, I should be taking my dissertation year off, but I'm also, yes, I just decided, why not? I want to connect with other people and see what it's like to be in another institution. And I realized that I do have, like, when you have, you project a lot of your traumas onto something. So in NYU, I felt more accepted. Why? I don't know. Than I do with Columbia. Um, like when you're teaching or just in general? In general. Oh, interesting. Like te even teaching and, and, and in general. Um, and maybe it's because the attitude in the university is a little bit different. Like Columbia is very competitive. And again, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's just how the culture in the university is. It's the Ivy League also. Exactly. The Ivy, when people get into an Ivy League school, it's like... I'm in the Ivy League. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And NYU is a lot more chill. Like, I'm here to learn. If I learn well, good. I mean, and if not, well, it's on me. <laughs> yeah, USC was like that too. Yeah, USC was like play hard, work hard yeah. kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. And I'm more that. Like, I felt that 
my attitude fits more like with NYU as a culture mm. the Colombian I'm like okay I always thought that I was uh, on the wrong for not feeling welcome at Colombia I'm like no it's maybe part of it yes it's the culture but it's also my attitude towards it like yeah I feel that also um, I was I'm more open with NYU for because I don't know it just it felt there are things that I cannot explain but it just I, it felt that more on my okay this is the type of university I would like to teach for example hmm. uh, and I'm okay that is not like Ivy League or uh, because I value my comfort in that sense like feeling a little bit more included feeling that I don't have to be like the best all the time look all my awards and phew, it's just like i want to take my time i want to digest yeah and you value your like day-to-day -day life exactly. and not your resume exactly yeah um, even though you still will have columbia on your resume <laughs> well and that's the other thing i, I mean i think part <laughs> of the all being said by the way it's, you still will have this this and this but it's that, not like you're not <laughs> no 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 i do i mean of course i cared and when i got into grad school i got into ucsd which was my dream school. Yeah, it's great for composition. A lot of people don't know, but UCSD. People always ask me, oh, I want to get into UCSD. Like people contact me, I want to get into USC, UCLA. And, you know, that's their, especially if they're on the West Coast, I'm like, what about UCSD? It's, it's so uh, great. Hello. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my, that was my dream. I got in. Like, I got like the notice a week after. Like, they were like, we want you. Call us if you get somewhere. At Columbia? No, at right, UCSD. Okay. And it was like the first time I just felt accepted. Like, I'm like, oh, I want to go there. Uh, did, they offer like a, did they offer a package there? Yeah. It's not I as mean, much as Columbia. No, it's a lot better than what they offer me. But it's also cheaper to live out there. But not as cheap. Not really. Well, La, Jolla, La Jolla is pretty expensive. Yeah. yeah, La Jolla specifically. Yeah. And, the, and I got into Cornell at Columbia and got waitlisted at CUNY. So I, it was pretty decent yeah. for the applications. And, and were you at, so there's a lot of people now that are applying uh -huh. to school. So maybe they'll skip ahead to this part. I don't know, <laughs> this is pretty late in the thing, but this is, I'm glad you're talking about this. Were you, were you in Columbia, uh, like this country before this, but you were in Boston before this, which one was it? I was in Boston. So I did a marching book in Colombia, then yeah. I moved to Miami, did my undergrad, and okay. then I moved to Boston to do my master's. And I stayed another three years. Yeah. Uh, and I was being, I was a barista in, in Boston when I was applying to... So there wasn't that like, as much difficulty as if you went straight from, you know, Colombia to the US, like you were already established yeah, in yes. the US. Yeah. So like for people that are trying to go to like an American college, um, I guess you, I guess, well, I guess you did go to an American college from mm -hmm. sure you went to, to the college in, in Florida, yeah, yeah. straight from, straight from there. So there was a way, there was a way in. And then once you got in, you found a way to stay. Yes. Uh, yes. So, and the, sorry, the, I'm like backtracking, but it's, <laughs> I think this is like good. super important to talk so, about. <laughs> something about my trajectory that I found really special is that I have a taste of every single uh, American university experience because I didn't go to a college. I went to a community college because I didn't know English, like I didn't speak English. And they're like, you need to start somewhere. I know. Well, <laughs> I was supposed to go and do 11th grade and 12th grade. 
uh, in high school because in Colombia we graduate in 11th grade. Okay. And my parents were like, well, but you need to do the high school here so you can do better transition. I'm like, okay, I do half a year more of 11th grade or whatever. And I'm ready to go to the school and it was a hot mess. And then and the principal is like, we cannot accept your daughter. And my parents are like, what? Uh, because she's already graduated. She has a high school degree. We cannot accept it, accept her. She needs to go directly to college. And my dad is like, what? Yeah, just, I, why don't you go to Miami-Dade? And that's like the funny thing about Miami, like an inside joke has been Miami. Like if everything fails, you go to Miami-Dade. Oh, really? <laughs> Miami-Dade College. I, I love the college so much. It just, it, I... But that was two years, like a community college? Yeah, well, it was longer for me. Yeah. So I spent a, a long time in English and also I was still, I, I was taking all the music classes, but not the requirements. Hmm. Did you have to take the TOEFL? I, or, I took or, the TOEFL. didn't pass it or... Because of the high school thing, I had to take it twice to make sure I was uh, I was able to transfer to another school. So after Miami Dade College, I went to New World School of the Arts, and it's not associated with the New World Symphony. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea how many auditionees would go to our building, and it's like, no, it's not in downtown. It's actually Miami Beach. You need to go to Miami Beach. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Good you're luck like there. half an hour there. You're, you're already late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a New World School of the Arts is a partnership between University of Florida, Miami Dade College, Miami Dade, uh, Miami Dade High School. Because this program is a combination of high school kids and college. It's kind of, it's really weird. But again, fantastic place. And I transferred there, so I had to do a TOEFL because I applied to University of Miami and I applied to New World to do my transfer so I can get my degree. Because you know how community college work, uh, that you just have two-year program and then you get your associates, which I did, and then you transfer. I transferred to this school, I spent two years and a half, and I graduated, and then I moved to Boston to do my... Um, master's and a certificate so it was uh, three years and then I'm like you know what I'm going to take a break and see how our things are from the outside and that's when I was a hostess in a, this really great restaurant in Watertown called Branch Line. That's near Boston. Yes yeah. just uh, yes yeah. uh, 40 minute walk from my house which is not bad. 40 minute walk is not bad. It's not bad. I mean, <laughs> not bad to me, especially in the winter in Boston. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, it wasn't that bad. I, I, I had fun being a hostess and walking 10 minutes to the bus to take it for 50 minutes and yeah. drop me off, whatever it needed to be. And then I became a barista at Pavement, another really good coffee shop. And I spent there my, the next three years. And then. I met my husband during those three years, yes, and then he's like, when, what, what are your next steps? And he kind of pushed me, you should go to grad school. Again. Really? Oh, it was him that pushed, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was, it was in my, in my head. In your head. You needed that, you needed yes. that support, yes. you know, that and extra push. What is really beautiful, my relationship, he is a person, uh, he is so great because 
after I met him, he's like, yo, by the way, um, Philippe Horel is coming. And so, and he's giving lessons. Are you free these times? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, okay, you have a lesson with Philippe Horel. Peace. Yeah. And go to Josh Feinberg's office or this, 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 whatever. So I was getting, I got a lesson without yeah. being at BU. <laughs> <laughs> Back to work. <laughs> <laughs> so again, and again, if you're a barista, you don't get any support, and you have like like community matters because of this reason. Uh, someone that gives you the little push and gives you a little hey, why don't you do this? Or how, I, this is a way that I can help you, and it's nothing big. It's just. But you were like composing because I mean, obviously, you got into Colombia after this, so you must have had a portfolio. I mean, you have, must have had stuff going on yeah, to get yeah. into. Columbia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was going like how how did you transition from from that to like all of a sudden you're in this full blown like you know DMA program? Um so there were two things. So part of it it was Murad who has helped who helped me get in private lessons with composers, visiting composers at BU. And the other thing that really helped me it was uh, my mom helped me pay two festivals. Like summer festivals. Summer festivals. Yeah, because they always cost. They, they cost. Yeah, yeah, they and cost. it was basically because my, <laughs> I'm a cancer and my, all the festivals are summer, in summer. So it was like, can we, birthday? <laughs> can yeah. you help me with this in my birthday? Yeah, yeah. And that was the other big push that would help me update my portfolio and yeah. meet more people and network. And... And again, this is a this is a position of privilege, right? Like, uh, my mom was able to help me with that. Well, I mean, when you that word bothers me because privilege to me connotates that it came from somewhere that you didn't work hard for it, and your mom, you know, obviously worked for every no, no, no. dollar that she that she saved up. So but it's like she hmm. saved it for you. You know, she had it for a rainy day and it happened to be you needed it at that time. Yeah, and then at yeah, some yeah. point you will also give back. So it all it all goes in a nice little circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing, so that's the thing about di diversity and equity that I kind of disagree how it's thinking, like the, how people are thinking about it or how it's perceived by institutions that I believe that each person walks between the line of privilege and victimization at all times. And this happens because we're intersectional. We live in, in a myriad of realities in parallel, right? Like if, if I'm, a, I'm a Latina, but I'm white Latina, it's a very different reality than a black Latina. It is what it is, uh, and I have that privilege. And it's something that I didn't ask, it's not uh, but I could also be, oh, I'm a Latina, poor of me. And no, you, it's always walking that fine line and being and getting comfortable with what feels uncomfortable. Like, um, yes, my mom worked hard and helped me, but there are other people that cannot be able to do that. So I have to yes. recognize that that happens. And it's just a recognition of that privilege than saying my mom did not work hard for this or that I did not, because again, I was working full time at payment. So I would have to wake up at five, have my shift six to two, 
and then my free time it was writing music yeah i mean you saying all this it makes uh, you know it's like not everybody's path i think it's really important for you to share uh, especially now because people are applying and like not everyone's path is the same mm -hmm. not everybody grew up with uh, you know big conservatory training or like a lot of piano like piano lessons every week with like the top yeah, people yeah, yeah. or or any of this stuff like it was uh, it was kind of like a like really a grind for you it sounds like and you didn't even know you were going to do uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you didn't <laughs> had it was not even on your mind to do a phd like for me it was always like kind of there like okay yeah you're probably going to do a masters and you're gonna, like it was like i took it for granted you know yeah. for sure 100 percent, you know oh yeah definitely i'll get into a program that pays my way and like oh i'm not even going to worry about any like like i definitely recognize that part of it mm -hmm. but i think that um like with your husband helping you along like that's also a form of support i wouldn't go as far as to say it's it's, it's a privilege you know because i think everybody deserves some kind of support you know i don't think oh, it's yeah, a privilege yeah, yeah. i think everybody to go through life needs needs a little bit of this of course yeah. of course i i when when i say privilege just to finish that is um it's just recognizing that my social context is very different uh it, it's, it's it's different in a way like and everyone everyone every single person even the most marginalized communities they have some privileges too that i not like wouldn't have yeah and is 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 that it's not i don't want to be like oh the bad guy or or something um bad or wrong or have a like negative connotation about the word but just coming back i also got um with with murad also gave me another lesson with lisa lim oh, oh wow <laughs> yeah just <laughs> like that yeah as you was like uh he was like okay lisa is giving lessons from these are the slots the times when are you available? And I'm like, this time, okay, just show up. Wow. And I went there and like, hi, hello. <laughs> she really liked my music. And then she's like, and uh, it was during the time of applications. Hey. No, it's fine. She probably heard, she probably heard something. All right, Ivy is coming up now. Ivy, easy. Easy, sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. Scare the crap out of everyone. I know, I know. You don't like talking. You don't like when people talk. So this is Ivy the Mini Ducks, and she has an Instagram, by the way. That's what Instagram is for. Showing this thing. <laughs> Shh. Come on, easy, 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 easy. All right, let's see if she calms down. And she liked my music, and she's like, so where, where's next? And I'm like, oh, I'm just applying to Doctorate. Where are you applying? And I'm like, oh, I'm doing the typical like Harvard and Columbia and ESSD, Brandeis, um, CUNY, Cornell, and that was, that's it. Let me hook you up with um, Haya Chernowin. Oh, wow, okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna email her. I'm gonna Professor at Harvard. Yeah. yeah. And I got a lesson with Haya. So it's just one person can make that difference in your life. Just that little support of, hey, I have access to something. And those lessons were vital because when you are of the conservatory, you don't have access to professors, especially if you're like a barista. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. especially um, out of school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So those lessons were like definitely richest, richest lessons.
I had during the time. And I kind of, mm, I really like that. Not having lessons all the time, but like just a really impactful one that can make the change. And that kind of led you to think that, okay, I would like to keep doing this kind of thing. Yes. So that's why yeah, the, yeah, like yeah, a yeah. PhD program type of thing would exactly. fit your... And it got between UCSD and Columbia. And that's just coming back to the thing about ideology, because I kind of went tangent on that. My dream school was UCSD. And Columbia was just, this is going to get me more opportunities. Yeah. So in a way, I feel like I had to betray one of my core values. Or that's how I interpreted. And, and I wasn't as kind to myself as I should have, you know. So in, in that regard, like, that's why part of the, the issue that I, I struggled being at Columbia is that I felt that I, I didn't... I didn't stay by my guns. I didn't stay by my yeah. ideal. I mean, that's an important lesson like that you're saying. Because I, I kind of felt a similar way from my undergrad. I was uh, deciding between USC and then the Columbia Juilliard Exchange Program. And I was like, oh my God, Columbia Juilliard. Because they, 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 you do lessons at Juilliard, then you, you get your degree at Columbia. I'm like, oh my God, this is like amazing. Like this is the best thing that could ever happen to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it took a lot of... Uh, persuasion from my parents, uh, that's a big part of it, um, to make me realize that, no, USC is where I belong, you know, right now. And that was like a really good decision. But if I did Columbia Juilliard thing at that time, I don't know if I would have felt like, oh, you know, I should have been at USC. So we don't, re it's hard to tell um, with these things. Like, you know, you could have been at UCSD and then felt the same way. Like, exactly, oh my God, I could, exactly. I could have been in New York. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So and it's really hard to... I mean, those, so, just, and, those things are very hard to, to kind of think about, you know, yeah. after the fact. And, and it's not like everything is, I mean, the faculty is fantastic at Columbia. They're great. So it's nothing, it's more of a general culture and the perception of the institution than the institution itself. Seth has been, Seth Cluet has been a huge support. Socha has been such a huge support. It's, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a great place in, in many, many respects. Like you have so much freedom that you wouldn't have in a more heavy loaded PhD program. Like you have to do five musicology seminars. You have to write yeah. the yeah, we do write those papers. It's not like it's an easy breezy, beautiful kind of thing, but it's it has a lot more liberties than you wouldn't have in our. Yeah, like if you went to CUNY, like CUNY Graduate Center, that place has a lot more research mm -hmm. uh, focus. I actually was, it was, I don't know why it took me so long to convince him to go <laughs> to CUNY, but he got into CUNY for a, a PhD and he was just waiting on other places. I said, accept that offer you just got because he loves doing research. He loves. Uh, he was somebody on the podcast, on this oh, podcast, yeah, thing, yeah, uh, yeah, Sammy yeah. Safe, he's, oh, he's nice. Lebanese actually, also a composer. And I told him, you know, like, um, you should take this offer because you love doing research, you like music, he's really into music theory and you know, all that. this is a good match for you and you can be in New York, he's never been in New York, like you can be there for at least five years, fully funded, like what's your, what's your issue? Mm -hmm. Just accept the offer mm -hmm. and move on. So there are some, sometimes it's more obvious, like to me, it was from the outside. Yeah. I think it also it takes someone on the outside to like yeah. assess your situation. Obviously you do what you want, but yeah, I, think, yeah, yeah. I think that also helps. So he like took that offer pretty 
reasonably quickly after I told him that. And so far, he, it seems like he enjoys being there. But and that's what happened to me, when my, especially my undergrad. It was like between USC and this Columbia Juilliard program, um, you know. Um, a similar thing kind of happened to me for my master's. Between I was deciding between Rice, which was fully funded, and Juilliard, which I had to pay for. And I was kind of leaning towards Rice, but it was like the second time I got accepted to Juilliard. It's like, well, if you reject them a second time, well, that's it. You know, you're not, you know, you're like a scab to them or something. So <laughs> and I got the teacher that I wanted there. Okay. Um, so I said, okay, let's just, let's just, it's only two years, bite the bullet. And then, you know, see what happens after that. It was only a two year commitment. So nice. I, I went with the place that was kind of, not in my gut, to be honest with you, because I, I heard so many good things about rice and the um, me too, it's and the like the culture and the way they the composers are treated and how the musicians love to work with the composers there, which is not really the case at Juilliard. So, but at the end of the day, I'm still happy I went to Juilliard. Like I'm, I, I met my wife there, you know. Um, I wrote music there that helped me get into Columbia. <laughs> so it's, it was a net positive. You know? yeah, yeah, so yeah. I always try to look at it that way, I guess. Like, what were the positive things that I got out of it? And I think, you know, Columbia did a lot of positive things. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So anyway, well, thanks again for having, for, uh, for being here. You know, it's amazing. First Columbia guest, hopefully we'll have more. Uh, <laughs> And there you go. That means we're, we're done for the... <laughs> All right. Her details are down in the description. You can hear her music. And uh, thanks again. Thank you so much for having right. me. It's been so lovely. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. It's been great. <laughs>